On April 25th, Israel marks 75 years of existence, commemorating the Declaration of Independence of 1948. But this year, amid the fireworks, military parades and flag-waving, the government of Benjamin Netanyahu will be on the lookout for disruptions and more protests after a controversial plan by his government to overhaul the judicial system saw hundreds of thousands of protesters in the streets of Israel and a strike that saw Ben-Gurion Airport, Israel's largest, and huge parts of the economy shut down. A last-minute U-turn by Netanyahu, announcing a delay in voting on the plan, brought some respite to the government, but tensions remain high. For Palestinians, Israel's Independence Day has a very different meaning and marks their mass displacement, known as Nakba, or the catastrophe, as Israeli settlements, illegal under international law, continue to spread in the West Bank. All these tensions have been brewing for decades, but came to a head this past few months. So why now? And what does it mean for the future of the State of Israel and Palestinians? In this episode, I am joined by Hilde Henriksen Vorge. She's a professor of history at the University of Oslo and research professor at PRIO, and has worked extensively on the role of Norway on the Oslo Accords. I am also joined by Jürgen Jensehaugen, senior researcher at PRIO, author of the book Arab-Israeli Diplomacy under Carter, and various articles on the Israel-Palestine conflict. I am Arno Siad, and you're listening to Peace in a Pod. Hilda, Jürgen, welcome both. So it's fair to say Israel has made the headlines several times in recent months, perhaps more than usual. We've had this extraordinary return by Benjamin Netanyahu at the very end of December 2022 as prime minister with a far-right coalition, in itself extraordinary too as well, and a judicial reform that brought hundreds of thousands of Israelis into the streets across many weeks. Hilde, you're a historian. Has Israel seen a crisis like this before? I, I think I will say no, but it's nothing new that there is demonstrations, uh, people taking to the streets, hard political debates in Israel. But Israel, all the way back since 1948, has been a democracy for the Israelis, for the Jewish Israelis. And they have kind of established this welfare state, this state with very good political rights for their citizens, uh, a strong trade uni union, a kind of model society it was seen as in, in Europe and in Norway. But this society has changed a lot. And we have never, ever in Israel seen hundreds of thousands marching out in the streets against their own government for weeks and weeks and weeks. So this is something new. This is definitively a political crisis. And indeed, on March 11th, protest organizers said that as many as 500,000 demonstrators took to the streets. And that's a lot of people for a nation of roughly 9.5 million people. Israeli newspaper Haaretz called it the largest demonstration in the country's history. So, Jorgen, who were those protesters on the streets? And were you surprised by the scale of it? Yes, I was surprised by the scale of it. So th I think I would answer in two parts. So in terms of who participated, 
it was generally large swaths of Israeli society, but I think in in general it was dominated by leftists and centrists, uh, secularists. It was dominated by, to a large degree, sort of uh, the, the tech society, the economic, the modern type society as we think of that. But I think the other part of that, the answer is who was absent, who was not in the protests. Mm. And I think that is sort of a three-part answer. First, the the Palestinian Israelis, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, they were absent. Second, sort of the, the Orthodox society was absent. And then sort of the right-wing core, the, the Likudniks, as we think of them, but also the far right, they were absent. So it was like three groups were absent. But beyond that, it wasn't just secularists. So there were a lot of religious people in the demonstrations. But the three groups I talk about, they were absent. Right. And I guess this echoes a little bit the different sentiments towards that judicial reform that Netanyahu's government has been trying to bring about. So, Jorgen, for our listeners, can you remind us what the current system is and what are those proposed reforms? So, one thing I would like to say is that uh, the judicial reform is, is a clever way of framing it because reform sounds positive, right? So, the opposition, they frame it as a judicial coup, as, as a complete change of what Israel is, and they talk about it as a destruction of the liberal democracy. And we'll get into the problematizing what it means that we call Israel a liberal democracy. But just to be short about what the system was, the answer to that, in a sense, is that Israel is a peculiar type of state which does not have a constitution. What it has, it, it, it has a declaration of independence. It has a set of so-called basic laws. And those basic laws have sort of a constitutional weight. And then it has a set of, of other laws, normal laws, so to speak. And it is um, a parliamentary democracy, but there is a balance of power where the legal system, the, the high court, the Supreme Court, checks whether laws passed in parliament are acceptable according to this complicated set of basic laws. So they interpret um, what the parliament decides on, the Knesset. Now, what Netanyahu and his government is challenging is who appoints the Supreme Court. Now, traditionally, that has been appointed through sort of a, a complicated set of, of appointees where there is sort of a balance. So that it's the typical balance of power between the judiciary and the, the legislative uh, branches of power. What the Netanyahu government is now doing is basically destroying the independence of the judiciary, meaning that if you win the election, you also win the judiciary. So that's why it's called a judicial coup, because it, it means that if you win the election, you win everything. There is no checks and balances. It was in actually uh, former defense minister Benny Gantz who spoke of a constitutional coup, uh, as you said. And on the other hand, you do have Netanyahu saying that this is all baseless and that the plan would actually strengthen democracy. And this is really a narrative that has emerged with those protests and that reform is that Israel's very democracy at stake here. So you have Netanyahu's government on the one side saying this is baseless and this will make it better. On the other hand, you have the leader of the opposition, Neil Lapid, who said this is extreme regime change. And then you have the Supreme Court president herself decrying those reforms, saying they would crush it and they would deal a fatal blow to democracy. So a lot of opposition from very strong voices in the country, but a prime minister who tell them that they are completely wrong. So Hilda, 
Is Israel's democracy under threat? Uh, I will say so. And I think that we should underline that now we are talking about the Israelis, the Jewish Israelis. We are for once not talking about the Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship or the Palestinians in the occupied territories. But I think that in order to understand this crisis, uh, we have again to step back and kind of explain all the various groups that constitute the Israeli state. And in the beginning, uh, we had with political power the uh, Jews coming from Europe with a kind of European background. Then we had many, many Jews coming from the Middle East, immigrating to Israel after 1948, and they felt oppressed. Then again, we had in the 1990s about one million Russian Jews immigrating to Israel who also felt that they was not heard. And then we have in particular the ultra-Orthodox Jews who really want to protect all their religious rights. And all these groups are now up against each other. But very many of them, the uh, Likud party, uh, the uh, where we have many conservative, we have many uh, Russian uh, Jews, we have uh, the far-right party, we have the ultra-Orthodox party, they constitute the government. So they want to protect and continue to protect their rights. But they are, are now very challenged by the rest of the Israeli society, the more secular part of the society, who does not want all these groups to kind of stay in power and have all these rights. Yeah, so I, I think I want to add that we're talking about three types of tensions here at once, in a sense, on a systemic level. So as Hilda is pointing out, we can divide between sort of the Israeli Jewish society and the Palestinian society. So on sort of the Israeli Jewish society, this is kind of a battle between what we think of as liberal democracy, meaning that it's one person, one vote, but there is also a system of checks and balances and individual rights and the system protects the individual. But there is also the question of populist democracy, which is also a form of democracy, but it's a different form of democracy. It means if you win 50.1% of the vote, you control everything because you are the majority. And that, in a sense, is, is what at stake. So Netanyahu is basically making a democratic argument, but it's not a liberal democratic argument. He's making the argument, look, we won the majority. We have 64 seats in the Knesset, i.e. the government, and therefore the legislature should belong to the people. But even that we, that we the government, isn't that straightforward, right? Because we saw on March 25th, the first dissent from within the government itself. Yoav Gallant, Israel's defense minister, said there was now a clear, immediate and real danger to Israel's security, with some Israelis saying that they wouldn't answer the call for military reserve duty if the reforms proceed. So the defense minister asked Netanyahu to pause the reform and Netanyahu fired him before announcing that he would still keep him on for now. So that's really confusing. Um, Hilda, can you tell us what happened and how solid is Netanyahu's coalition at this stage? No, it's, uh, it's not solid at all. Uh, and to continue to talk about these groups that constitute 
the government. There's uh, mainly three kind of groups. The uh, Likud party, a major right-wing Israeli party, the ultra-orthodox parties, and the very, very extreme right-wing racist parties called, in English, Jewish power. And it is in the name. They want more power for the Israeli Jews. And, of course, these three groups within the government, they want different things. Uh, For instance, for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, it is extremely important that there will be passed a law in Knesset giving him as Prime Minister immunity. Why is this important? Yes, if this law is not passed, he will probably go to jail. So he has kind of the choice, uh, being Prime Minister of Israel or going to jail. But in order to uh, have the other groups supporting him, he, this is kind of payback time. He have to give these other groups various concessions, uh, and they want different things. And that is why this coalition is uh, weak, and we might see a split of the government uh, in the near future. Yes. Yeah, so, so to add to that, I think it's important to point out that sort of the orthodox parties, they're stably big. They usually have the same size of support no matter what. The far right-wing uh, Jewish power party was not in the Knesset before, so they made this amazing election and they probably cannot repeat it. So they're going to claw themselves to that government because if the government falls, they will not repeat that success. I think what is peculiar is that the Likud party, which has been very, very stable under Netanyahu, there seems to be cracks there because there is some tension within Likud about this type of reform. So Likud traditionally is both a far-right party, but it's also sort of a liberal party in some sense. And there is a tension within that party about that. And they have usually uh, um, rallied around the leader. But since this particular reform has met so much opposition, you see that in, in polls now, Likud is bleeding support. So if they lose election, it's, or if the government falls, they will lose the next election. They will not uh, repeat the kind of success they've had previously. I want to pick up on what you said, Hilda, that Netanyahu's coalition was weak and that they want something out of this. Now, in politics, especially in a coalition, everything has a price. And it seems like that price for Netanyahu to postpone that reform yet keep his coalition intact was to concede something big to Itamar Ben-Gavir, his Minister of National Security, and a very controversial figure. He approved a proposal to create a National Guard. Hilda, can you tell us a bit about Ben-Gavir, why he wants a National Guard, and what will it do in practice? Itamar Ben-Gavir, he is a very controversial, extremely right-wing figure. He has... uh, participated in a lot of actions uh, against the Palestinians and others so that he actually uh, didn't have the opportunity to run for elections for before this time. He is in a way seen as a criminal uh, by many, but he has a larger and larger support base. And what he wants is that he wants 
to really strengthen the power of actually the Jews, all the Israelis, seeing this as the Holy Land, as their right to all the land. He wants to expand uh, settlements on the West Bank. He wants to make legal, illegal settlements. He wants to have his own militia in order to support his extreme followers and so on and so forth. And he is creating a climate both in Israel and indeed the government, that makes it very tense and very difficult because he pinpoints every issue with the Palestinians to the extreme. So the problem for the government is Netanyahu going to do with this man. He's, uh, after all, national security minister. And his best partner and friend, uh, friend Smotrich, is the uh, minister of finance. They have important positions in the government. So they continue to push for concessions uh, to the cases that they see important. And this is Benjamin's, Netanyahu's biggest dilemma, because if he uh, continue on that road, we will see the demonstrations again uh, in the streets of, uh, of uh, Israel. Yeah, so just to add to that, Ben Gvir represents what we think of as the most violent settlers. So usually in in sort of typical media articles, you talk about the settlers as a uniform group. But there are 700,000 settlers, and most of them live in large settlement blocks where they as individuals don't even think of themselves as settlers. They think of themselves as living in suburbs close to Jerusalem, close to Tel Aviv. But when you look at the map, they're settlements. But the type of settlers Ben Gvir comes from and supports and, and draws his support from, these are what is known as the hilltop youth. Basically, people who individually build a small settlement deep inside Palestinian territory, often you know within Palestinian cities, Hebron being the most famous, and engage in rampant violence against Palestinians, whether it's chopping down olive trees, burning cars, beating up Palestinians. You know, these are, you know, violent criminals, basically, stealing land on their own initiative. So in the international community, we talk about settlements as illegal, and, and they all are, right? But in the Israeli system, they talk about legal settlements and illegal settlements. The legal ones are these big blocks, but the illegal ones are the, the small ones that are set up. And it's the illegal settlements that Ben Gvir really draws his support from. And it says a lot about uh, Itamar Ben Gvir that in his office, he used to have a picture of Baruch Goldstein, the Jewish, extreme Jewish settler who went into the mosque in Hebron and just shut down, uh, I think, around 20 Palestinians while they were praying. This is kind of his hero. This is his policy. So this is extremely dangerous when it comes to the conflict with the Palestinians. Hilda mentioned Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, who leads the far-right religious Zionism party. On April 10th, him and Ben Gvir, alongside thousands of settler activists and members of right-wing organizations, marched to Iviatar, an Israeli settlement in the West Bank. Organizers said the march was to strengthen the settler movement and pressure the government to allow the illegal outpost to be repopulated by Israelis. Interesting to note, Ben Gvir was heckled by several participants who basically told him, you're not doing enough, you're not protecting us. So 
Netanyahu has two ministers from his government marching in those illegal settlements. Jürgen, is this something the prime minister publicly endorses? And also, if those settlers feel the government is not doing enough, how would that translate politically and on the ground? So it's important to make, I think, one distinction between the way Netanyahu thinks and the way Ben Gvir and Smotrich think. They both, I'm using Ben Gvir and Smotrich as one here, uh, but both Netanyahu and Ben Gvir and Smotrich think of the West Bank as sort of eternal Israeli territory, what they call Judea and Samaria. The difference is how they think about acquiring it. So the typical Netanyahu perspective is to be risk averse, to take a little bit here, a little bit there, talk softly and build houses. The Smotrich Benvir way of doing it is basically, you know, to hell with the consequences. This is ours. And they will build, they will talk offensively, uh, they will, will, you know, uh, violence is allowed. They're, they're hardcore activists. They're not used to, to acting on, on the big you know, international stage where you have to say, say things carefully in the UN and to the US or whatever. They just act. And this is kind of Netanyahu's balancing challenge, right? He wants the same thing as them. But if, if you push too far, too fast, too loudly, too violently, you meet a lot of opposition. So let's say Netanyahu has a 50-year perspective. They have a two-year perspective. I'm, I'm, I'm making up these numbers, but just to illustrate the type of difference in their thinking and the type of short-term thinking that is bound to create more conflict. And what you see is you see a lot of the most radical settlers, they now feel that not only do they have the government tacitly on their side, they have an active green light and ministers showing up to support their violence. So the most extreme example of that is what was known as, as the pogrom in Hawara, where settlers burnt down basically a Palestinian village. And right afterwards, Smotrich goes out and says, you know, it sh- the, the village should be removed, right? And that is the type of language that you haven't really seen, at least on a top political level before. I would just like to add that this is also dangerous because the frustration on the Palestinian side is already so high. You you see there so many young people, they never experienced uh, the days in the 1990s where there were talks about compromise or peace or dream of a Palestinian state. They are raised in violence and very many of them are of course extremely provoked by these new settler activity. So it's very easy here to light the fire. And then we have a kind of explosion, meaning that we will continue to see more and more, I'm afraid, clashes with the Palestinians. I want to pick up on something Jürgen said about Bezalel Smotrich and his comments that a Palestinian village should be, quote-unquote, erased. He apologized for these comments, but they caused quite a stir in the United States. The Biden administration called it repugnant and irresponsible, which made his visit to Washington, D.C. a few days later rather awkward. More than 100 Jewish-American leaders signed a statement opposing it, and no member of the Biden administration met with him. A few weeks later, while in Paris, he made headlines again when he said there is, quote-unquote, no such thing as a Palestinian people, essentially denying their very existence. So, Hilda, 
Can you give us a sense of how bad relations are at the moment between the United States and Israel? I'll say, yes, it is bad. But I would more than that like to underline that still the United States is Israel's best friend. And the case is that whoever it will be in in the US who will run for elections it be president it will be you know member of congress you name it they really need to think about how they portray israel uh, and this is not because of the american jews they are only 2% of the population in the united states no it's because this huge, huge Christian conservative majority almost who sees Israel as a light in this Muslim terrorist darkness. So if you want to win any elections, you cannot still afford to have any kind of quarrel uh, with Israel. When that is said, it is very seldom we see a, a administration in Washington talking in such a language to Israel as we have seen now over repeatedly over and over again and uh, i think that the biden administration is to put it frankly rather pissed with Netanyahu and they have been so for a very long time. Uh, Netanyahu, he, he used to run in and out of the White House uh, and now he has not even been invited. Uh, and uh, uh, I think it's not only rumors who tells us that he feels personally insulted, but it is a very strong signal coming from Washington to this government that dear Jerusalem, shape up You cannot continue with this policy, creating such huge conflict internally in Israel and also when it comes to the Palestinians. Although the U.S. don't care that much about the Palestinians, but they care about that this is conflict. This is making it dangerous uh, in the Middle East. So is Netanyahu just basically banking on a return of a Republican administration that would be perhaps more sympathetic to them? Let me put it in the simplest terms, I think. Netanyahu and Obama hated each other. Obama gave Netanyahu the biggest package of, of, of money any U.S. president has ever given Israel. $3.8 billion dollars per year. And that was a 10-year commitment. The debate in the U.S., it's not really about whether to keep giving that annually. It's about how much top-up to add to that. So it, it really says a lot. The tensions are high, but the support is stable. Of course, for Palestinians, Israel's Independence Day has a very different meaning and marks the anniversary of their mass displacement. The issue of continued occupation and illegal settlements in the West Bank isn't going anywhere. And we are here in Norway, home of the Oslo Accords of 1993 and Oslo Accords II in 1995. Hilda, can you remind our listeners what those accords included for Israelis and Palestinians and why they failed to bring about a state for Palestinians? The Oslo peace process reflects the fundamentally asymmetrical power situation between the Israelis and the Palestinians, where you have Israel as the stronger party, 
You have the Palestinians as the weaker party, and we have small, weak Norway who tried to and really managed to negotiate this agreement. And then the question uh, to ask is, what kind of agreement was this Oslo agreement? Uh, It was an agreement where Norway, as the weak mediator or facilitator, really played the game according to Israel's rules of the game. Because Israel was the stronger party. This was not because Norway in particular liked Israel so much, or the Israelis, but Israel was the stronger party. And the Palestinians, they were so weak that they kind of had to take and accept what came out of the negotiations that were kind of decided by Israel. And this was the reality we saw on the ground uh, in Israel and in Palestine. The Palestinians had this huge dream of a Palestinian state. They thought that they gradually could uh, work towards this solution. I think it was never Israel's intention at all. And today we see the result. And the result is even worse than it was before the agreement. And it has become worse and worse for every day. The Palestinians live under hard Israeli occupation. There is no horizon. There is no hope. There is no dream. And the situation gets worse for every day. And do you see a direct link between these Oslo Accords and what they ultimately failed to do and the unrest we're seeing today in the streets of Israel. Absolutely. Uh, But not the unrest we see in the streets of Israel because in a way the unrest in Israel is about how the situation is going to be for the Israelis. Of course it's linked to the Palestinians but the unrest we see in the Palestinian territories. There has never ever been killed so many Palestinians as the last year. And the killings continue, the clashes continue. And I think that uh, the link here also to the Oslo Agreement is that these young Palestinians, they see no hope. They see no future. Uh, they They are born after the Oslo agreement was signed. They had never participated in anything called negotiations, compromise. Uh, So they see the only solution as armed struggle, pick up weapons and go into clashes with the Israelis. We talked a lot today about that judicial reform. And on March 27th, Netanyahu announced that he would delay it until the next parliamentary session in May. He said... When there is an option to avoid civil war through dialogue, I take a time off for dialogue. So this is not over, right? No, it's 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 really just postponed. Uh, and we see the demonstrations, uh, they continue. Uh, and it seems very clear that Netanyahu is going to push forward with this. Uh, and of course, Netanyahu has three overhanging court cases against him. So for him, it's it's really a race against time. And having challenged the judicial system so much, it's not as if the judicial system is going to back off in the three court cases against him. So, so perhaps he's, he's really, you know, pushed them to speed things up. And it also seems as if that the next big issue that's coming up, it is the question about the ultra-Orthodox community. 
they uh, are above 13% of the Israeli population. And this community, they have a lot of privileges. They do not, the men don't have to do military service. Most of them don't work. Uh, they sit all day in these uh, yeshivas, reading, uh, you know, from the Torah, all these uh, studies uh, of the Bible and so on. And they want to have their rights protected. They want to continue not to do military service and also uh, not work and then pay tax to the Israeli society. Uh, but we can see that uh, that a huge majority of the Israeli society, they do not want to continue with giving all these extremely <laughs> expensive concessions to this community. Uh, and this might be the next problem for Netanyahu because they are a very stable part of his coalition government. Uh, so what does he do when this comes up in Knesset about, again, protecting these uh, ultra-Orthodox groups? So I think we will just have one round after another round, one case after another case, and I don't dare to say anything about how this will end for the Netanyahu government. And how will it end for Palestinians? I mean, how does this judicial reform potentially affect them? What does it mean for those illegal Israeli settlements there. So I think this is really a core debate that's very often the elephant in the room. To put it in sort of simplistic terms, Israel is two systems at once. On the one hand, as we've talked about, you know, at the start of this uh, discussion, it is a liberal democracy for primarily its Jewish citizens. On the other end, It is a military dictatorship, an occupying power for the Palestinians who live in the occupied territories and East Jerusalem, which by international law is, is occupied territory. And those two things exist at once. And this is the reason we've had increasingly this apartheid discussion in international fora, right? Are these systems actually one and the same? And your rights depend on where you live, who you are, and whether you're a citizen or not. I think these demonstrations and the current government really highlight the tension there. Because on the one hand, the demonstrations are really about the f reforms that affect only those who have citizenship. But on the other hand, the same government is making reforms that change the status of Palestinians in the occupied territories. And one of the major things they've done is they've transferred authority of the occupied territories from the IDF, which is the Israeli military, to the portfolio of Smotrich, the Minister of Finance. What that means is the occupied territories are now under civilian Israeli administration. In legal terms, that means de facto annexation, meaning that the Israeli state now in practice considers the occupied territories part of Israel. And once they do that in practice, that means that we're in what we can call a one-state reality with two parallel systems, a liberal democracy for the citizens and a military dictatorship for the non-citizens. And using the term, you know, the common term between the river and the sea, we have one system overall, but two systems within that system. And the demonstrations only address one half of that. They only address the rights for the citizens. 
but things are getting increasingly terrible, basically, for the non-citizens. And, and that's not just about the type of settlement violence or settler violence, but it's, it's about the, their legal status. And what's happening is that there is no horizon with any good outcome for the Palestinians. And as, as we, you know, we can talk a lot about, we have a generation that has no hope. They have no political horizon. Two-state solution is dead. One-state solution with equal citizenship is not even a talking point. So we're stuck in this liminal space where there is a, 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 a no-solution limbo where the Palestinians don't get citizenship and they don't get a state. So basically, the current government is destroying two systems. They're both destroying sort of the core of their liberal democracy, but they're also destroying the potential for any solution for the Palestinians. And, and this is why this apartheid discussion is going to become more and more prevalent, because what is the horizon? And, and there is no positive one. Hilde, Jürgen, thank you very much. This episode was produced and edited by Arno Siad and Brage Pedersen and contains clips from the Office of the Prime Minister of Israel and The Guardian. <laughs>